to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Kamaya Marshall, African-American Media Director and Deputy National Press Secretary of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the official campaign arm of the Democrats in the House of Representatives. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So glad to be joining you all today. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about your work. What do those fancy titles actually entail? (laughs) Uh, The titles may be fancy, but the work is very real um, and it's needed at this time. Uh, Right now, pretty much I focus on outreach and uh, being a spokesperson, but mainly working with candidates that have large African-American populations also all the African-American candidates as well, um, and candidates who have diverse populations as well. Um, so that's one of my main duties in this role. Also, um, just being a spokesperson as far as speaking on African-American issues, which are very critical at this time. Uh, so that's in short, I hope that answers your question in short, but it's more to it than what I said, but. <laughs> yeah. So could you tell us more about how the Democratic Party is approaching the concerns of the African-American community and what you would say those top concerns are? Yes. So right now, our goal is to be proactive. Our goal is to make sure that we're engaging um, in the African-American community in advance, um, hearing what they need, letting them know they also have a voice at the table, clearly, um, especially African-American women who have a lot of power and they are noticing their power. Um, our goal is to make sure that we're engaging in all these communities to make sure that not only are their needs being met, but how we can change some of the narratives and some of the things that are actually happening um, when it comes to making sure they have a representative representing them and their issues that they believe in. That is our goal. My goal in this role is to bring cultural competency um, in this position, making sure that candidates are aware of issues in the African-American community, making sure that they understand what's happening and just not saying it, but also doing it. And like, again, I, I'm going to say this probably a few times, culture competency. That's one thing the party has to understand as far as dealing with the African-American community and just people in color in general, understanding their culture, how to message them and how to make things work for them and, and listen to them and take heed to what works for them. It's important. I think that really speaks to this debate that's been raging on ever since Trump's non-popular vote victory about how Democrats should approach race. As I discussed with Sean McElwee on the podcast a few weeks ago, the pundit class has been saying that Democrats need to moderate their message and focus less on racial justice so that they can win over Trump voters. We saw that in a recent Vox piece about how race makes white voters much more conservative on the liberal issues that the Democratic Party is pushing. On the other hand, progressives, and especially progressives of color, say that Democrats should focus on the base, which, as we saw last year in Virginia and Alabama, is highly dependent on people of color, Mm -hmm. especially black women, as you mentioned. What do you think about this debate? So, a person in in my arena, and think about various perspectives. I try to want to hear all the perspectives, but I also try to make sure that the masses of people in this kind of debate, when you're talking about progressive politics, the Democratic Party, I think that we should just really focus on being one. Uh, I think we should focus on the the issues at hand. Uh, I'm a person that supports all, and I think that should be like the more 
that should be the debate as far as how can we make things more inclusive for everyone on, on both spectrums um, because that's the missing part and I think it should be more solutions being discussed versus just hearsay things that we're hearing um, when it comes to the different politics of everyone. Uh, I think it's better just to hear all the perspectives out, perspectives out and come up with solutions that will be effective and efficient. And I think that's a piece of the conversation that's missing in that conversation. But I ensure I support everyone and, and their ideas and what they want to do in these different spaces. But at the same time, I think we should start thinking about solutions and things that will work moving forward. It's a big question too, but in short, and in my opinion, I think that solutions should be a part of that conversation. I never, if you sit back, you never hear, well, what's the solution for this? How do we work with all the different voters from these various areas and bring them into one? That, that conversation isn't being had. So what would you say some of those solutions are? So I guess one would be like listening to various uh, folks in various areas, doing focus groups just to see what they like, what they want to hear, what works for them um, in so many different spaces. Where we are now in, in politics, it's many perspectives. We have a nice group of people who are becoming independents and just leaving the party politics. However, I think that should be the focus and the solution is to hear all the different perspectives. I know, for instance, in the African-American community, millennials are now uh, the largest number of voters. We, are, we outnumber um, older African-Americans. And I think, I'll just use this for an example, I think that we should do focus groups with various millennials around the countries. Um, and I'm going to speak to one group that, on this question, and that's African-American millennials, and ask them what works for them. What do they want to see happen? What changes do they want to see? Who do they want to represent them? And from there, come up with our solutions and ideas and move forward from there. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on some criticisms that the DCCC has gotten. It's come under significant scrutiny for insufficiently supporting black candidates. According to The Collective, which is a PAC dedicated to electing black candidates to public office, they issued a letter to the DCCC asking in March why no black candidates had been endorsed in the Red to Blue program. The DCCC did endorse two black candidates later, but the DCCC then received scrutiny for insufficiently supporting women and especially black women with candidates like Kimberly Hill not saying that black women are taken for granted by a party that heavily relies on their support. How do you respond to this? I'm glad you brought this question up. I think that it's, uh, this question in, in this statement is not being said correctly. When you look at red to blue districts, these are conservative districts. As an African-American, there are not many African-Americans in conservative areas. And so this whole narrative of saying that uh, the DCCC is not endorsing candidates, they're not supporting enough black candidates, well, currently most of these candidates that are being discussed are in red to blue areas. Um, a lot of these red to blue areas don't have a large African-American population. Now saying that, it does not mean an African-American candidate cannot compete in a conservative district. For instance, you have candidates like Warren Underwood, who has a small population of African-Americans, but also within that red district, it's a suburban district, so it's very different. 
And I think this is the time for a lot of groups to educate people on the process. And that's the conversation that's not been had. Um, it's not going to be a lot of African-American candidates in these conservative areas. However, it's a mass amount of African-American candidates running in true blue congressional districts. Yet, you don't hear anything about that. Uh, so that that is a big piece of that criticism that no one wants to talk about. Um, and that's the reality of it. Uh, of course, I would, me personally, I would love to see a, a host of African-American candidates everywhere. However, the reality is it's not a lot of African-American candidates um, in conservative areas or that will get support in a conservative area. So it's a little bit more to what we're hearing. Um, and the one, and that, that headline that came out about the Democratic Party pretty much supporting one African-American woman. No, that's one woman that's running in a red district, but no one broke that down. Um, as far as the collective pack, uh, we work really well with the collective pack. I like what they're doing. I support them in their efforts. However, uh, Lauren Underwood and Colin, and actually we have three, Stephen Horsford, are folks who are on Red to Blue, and they have been looked at before things that were mentioned to the media. However, they do, it's, it's the Collectors Pack job to make sure and push, and I'm glad we're, they, they as, a, as an African-American male, and just as an African-American in general, I'm just glad we have organizations like that um, supporting and, and pushing uh, more people of color to run. Um, but on the flip side, you know, it's a, it's a process and a lot of folks are not discussing that process of African-American candidates running in conservative areas. Um, and so, in short, they did not, uh, they weren't the force behind that, but they, they do play a role in making sure that we, we get quality candidates. But Underwood uh, and uh, Colin in Texas and Horsford are solid candidates. And it shows in their numbers. It speaks for themselves. This is more than what we do here at the Detroit, but it's more so the community support they get from in those districts, um, the support they're getting uh, in the local community as far as fundraising. Um, so it's way more in play than what's been put out there. I think the issue of, of black candidates running in conservative districts is so important because 55% of black Americans currently live in the South, which is considered solidly Republican. How have you seen black candidates in the South running their campaigns? Is there is there a different strategy? And what does the DCCC do to support them? Well, each, uh, each uh, campaign is completely different. There is not one way a campaign should be ran because all voters are different. So we can't focus on one particular way. So in the South, it's really hard. Like I would love to see African-American women in Alabama or Mississippi, uh, that would be like out of nowhere, especially in a state like Mississippi. Um, not saying it's not possible because it's definitely possible. It all depends on their voting base and the support they have. And that, that plays a major role in a lot of that. Um, down south, as a person who's lived up north and down south, southern politics is something else. And actually, it is not progress. However, when you look at a state like Alabama and what happened um, last year with the Senate race, it shows you the power African-Americans have in the voting block. However, that base has been asleep. That base has not been uh, awoken yet. But however, you look at the governor's race in Georgia, Stacey Abrams, that is a, a big deal. And that voting block, she's been working on that for years. Years. A lot of folks don't know. She's been working on the ground for years. 
And it's going to take a, a big awakening of change, like what happened in 2008 with President Obama, to kind of wake that base up. Because now that we're, as a people, are learning our power in the, in the in electoral, just learning how voting works and just being active and having the candidate to energize that base is working. Um, so there isn't one particular way um, to get the Southern folks. It's not a strategy down South that uh, shows how people work or how to get more people out. It's just more so about engaging that base, keeping them active and aware and being proactive. Um, and that's what happened down South with uh, the Doug Jones race, what's, what's happening with the Stacey Abrams campaign. Uh, and those are two conservative states, i.e. Georgia and Alabama. When you look at a place like a Texas, that's it's actually even harder there. I, I went to school in Texas, and I, I, as they say, don't mess with Texas. I think Texas is like its own United States of America. Um, and you have to really work those bases there completely different from how would you work it in a, in a Florida or in a Georgia or Alabama. In so many words, there's not one particular way or strategy to wake that large base of African-American voters. However, is it being done? Yes. Can it work? Yes, it can. But when it goes into like congressional races, which is way more smaller compared to a Senate race or a governor's race, it becomes a little bit more tricky. Could you highlight some of the big races in 2018? Ah, this is a lot of big races. Uh, I don't know which one to... <laughs> Honestly, I don't know which which way to begin and which race to pick is so many. In my opinion, all the races in 2018 are, are important or big races to me. I think a few others would agree as well. Um, but if you look at states like California, it's a lot of great races there. Right now, just recovering from California that happened, all those races, we're just <laughs> personally glad that no one got blocked out. Now that we have some great candidates out there running um, against uh, Republicans, this shows a lot. It, this is going to show how the bases are awakening in an area like that, that have been traditionally Republican and the seats have not been changed in a while. So that's that's going to say a lot. Um, and that goes for the same thing that's happening in Illinois with uh, Lauren Underwood's seat. Republican seat, it's never had a woman. Uh, she's, a, she's an African-American woman at that. And she's young and she's working a base there. Of, and guess what? She doesn't have that many African-American voters there. Uh, however, she has a nice base of working women and, and mothers um, that support her. Uh, so that's not going to be the same thing as a race in Texas, um, which is more, uh, if you look at more of a rural area. Uh, so all of them are different. And all of them are important. Clearly in 2018, I feel like every race is important. There is not one race. So I, I, I'm glad you mentioned California, because in case our listeners don't know, California has a top two primary system where all the candidates show up on the ballot regardless of party. And the top two vote getters will go on to the general election. And a lot of Democrats were worried that Democrats would be locked out of the top two system because there were just so many Democratic candidates and fewer Republican candidates. So say the Republicans could get a combined, you know, like 20 percent 
one of them gets like 13%, one of them gets seven. And there are just so many Democrats that even if the Democrats get the majority of the vote overall, no candidate makes it to the top two. Fortunately, that only seems to have happened in one race, I think California's eighth congressional district. But it kind of speaks to the problems of this system and concerns with the top two primary. And there are a lot of electoral reforms progressives have in mind. In California, this has brought up the discussion of ranked choice voting, which has been shown to also help diversity on the ballot. What are your thoughts on electoral reforms we have seen happen recently and that Democrats are pushing for the future? Okay, I love this question. So one, <laughs> electoral reform, and when I think of a state like California, it's a love-hate thing. It, it can be, it can either work for you or against you. In this case, I, I couldn't tell you. It's just like, just throw a whole bunch of papers in there and it's just like let them fall. But when I think about uh, all the redistricting and all those things that have taken place over the years, I'm glad that we have the, the redistricting committee that is working on a lot of good things right now that's needed. Um, mainly because I feel like they're cheating the system when they tamper with these voters in various areas especially in black communities, because they know that, oh, they're not going to go out and vote that much, but the tide is changing. Those things <laughs> should have kind of should have been in place some years ago, but I mean, you have to start somewhere. And I guess that's where we are now. The electoral system in the United States is, I think it, it, sh it should now represent who we are as America now. And that's something that's uh, been missing because again, it's been, I think folks have cheated over the, over the years, and now that we're heading to this place where more people are more people are very politically aware versus how it was in the past. More people are. Uh, I don't like to mention Donald Trump, um, and that, as the chairman of the DCCC says, he says his name a lot already. He likes it himself. He he's the as a comms communications person. Donald Trump is the best communications director out there. I said it, but in short. I will give him credit for breaking the base. I think that more people are politically aware of what's happening now because look what's happening every day. It's something new and people want clarity. And so I think within all this is happening with uh, the gerrymandering and stuff, transparency is on its way. And that's the biggest thing that was missing, transparency from our candidates, what's happening in the process. What is the process? Some people still are learning the political process. So something that I think has been kind of overlooked in the midterms is the possibility of voter suppression swinging the elections in favor of Republicans. In 2016, Wisconsin's voter ID law disenfranchised a larger number of black voters than Trump's margin of victory. That's huge. How do you think voter suppression can impact the 2018 elections? It can very much so impact 2018. The thing is, you just never know where it's happening. And when you find out, it's kind of like at the last minute. I think more people are aware, more people are very cautious. A lot of folks are very cautious when it comes to those things. Voter IDs and, uh, and the voter laws are, people are just taking it way more serious than it has been in the past, as they should, because every day we hear something new with the 2016 election, and here it is, 2018, and we're still talking about what happened in 2016, which shows that it's, it's 
is problematic. And I think that it's an issue that should be discussed a lot more than what it is now. It's not a, a pretty subject people, and especially the press, would like to talk about. But like you said, it's something that should be discussed. I This is an issue that I think should be discussed more. Folks should be educated on it more. We should find ways to identify signs of suppression, voting suppression happening in various areas. Um, so it's it's... I don't even know where to begin or where to start or even how to particularly answer this question clearly because there's so many great areas within uh, voter suppression, especially the African-American community. But like I said, they are noticing that African-Americans are now kind of waking up in the political process and they're becoming way more more aware. However, African-Americans have always been a part of the process and they've always had a voice. However, that's the whole point. They don't want... Uh, the people who mess with the redistricting and all that, they don't want uh, African-Americans to have that vote, to have that sway, to have that power um, to elect folks who represent them. So that's that's what brings us here to the question and what we're discussing now. So I think that the more we educate and the more we bring awareness to it, the more change that can actually happen. Um, and remember, it all starts local. Local politics, it, it all, in short, it all starts local. It matters there. And when you have those people in power, a lot of that can change. A lot of that can change. And people are starting to take heed to that and start to notice that, hey, it starts on the ground in your home, in your county, in your city, your state. It starts there. It's very important. Yeah, I think we saw that a lot in Virginia last year where there were a lot of wins, a lot of historic wins as well in the Virginia House of Delegates and across the country in non-statewide positions. Right. As you mentioned, this is so important for redistricting because in most states, that's the job of state legislatures. Mm -hmm. And that's how Republicans gerrymandered the country so much in the first place. Correct. So with these local wins, uh, how, how is the Democratic Party focusing on local candidates. There's this common criticism that under Obama, the party largely abandoned its focus on local races. What What's changing now? Well, one, if you just look at, I can speak from a perspective of that, and that's looking at the house races, identifying folks who identify with folks who represent their local issues and values. Um, and that's where we are in 2018. You already have a burst of new people who or this is their first time running for office, but these are also local leaders. Um, and that's the difference in the change in where we are now. And it's a lot of uh, gray areas out there, and a lot of confusion, a lot of folks saying, oh, I'm not getting support from the Democratic Party. This is not happening. But no one asks that candidate, well, how is your local support doing? How are you, are you getting any support in your community um, versus this other candidate? Are, is it, are these people out there helping you raise money? Are these people out here getting you in helping you get more endorsements from a local uh, affiliates, et cetera, and allies. Um, and I think where we are now and the difference is now is that we are voting local. And when I say voting local, meaning getting folks who are involved within the communities and have the local support. And that shows, that's kind of shown over the midterms um, where we are now, at least in the primaries, showing how the candidates that are out there, these, these ladies and gentlemen are, are local folks that, have strong backings within their community and these, those voters feel empowered by them. And so the energy is extremely real and it's very high. Um, but again, it brings us back to what's happening locally on the ground in the community there, uh, in the communities there. So that says, that says a lot. 
So this month is Pride Month, and last year we saw a lot of historic victories for LGBTQ candidates. We saw the first transgender person elected to a state, uh, openly transgender person elected to a state legislature. We saw the first black transgender woman and uh, black transgender man ever elected to office in United States history. What is the Democratic Party doing to support LGBTQ candidates right now? Right now, uh, clearly we definitely support unions, LGBTQ. Um, there's not, uh, at least to my knowledge, it's not a particular thing. It's right now, as far as all the candidates running, um, actually have a few LGBTQ candidates running in, even in conservative areas right now. Uh, and the best thing we could do is making sure that they are getting the same support as everyone else. If there's anything different that we're not, we wouldn't do for anyone else that we wouldn't do for them. So uh, it's pretty even, to be honest. It's not one particular thing. Uh, and just identifying that, hey, this is an LGBTQ candidate and we support them. And, and clearly the, the backing that they're getting within their communities. And the thing is, I love the backing that I'm seeing um, with these candidates in conservative areas. It's is outstanding and yet surprising, yet I love it. Um, it just shows you that we're in a different time and things are different. Um, but there is not a, a particular strategy or anything um, for LGBTQ candidates, but do we support them? Of course. No questions asked. So lastly, how can folks find you online and how can they get involved in the movement? Um, so they can find me online on Twitter or Instagram. I want to do more on my Twitter. Uh, I wish my Twitter was like my Instagram. <laughs> I'm one of those millennials. Uh, they can find me online at, uh, my, my name is Kamaya Mandela, K-A-M-A-U, Mandela, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. And I'll do that again. That's at Kamaya, K-A-M-A-U, Mandela, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. And that's for Twitter and Instagram. Follow me. I follow back. I want to talk about FM issues, politics, all that stuff. I like to think I'm pretty cool. At least I try to be. <laughs> okay, I think so. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to doing more through all, giving you all some updates as uh, we move forward with different primaries into gen the general election in November. Yeah, for sure. So if folks want to hear interviews with great folks like Maya and candidates in those primaries and in those general elections, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.